0: We thought we were entering the home stretch of the 2020 campaign season, but then on September 18th, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. The ensuing nomination fight over who will replace her has quickly consumed politics in Washington and in several races across the country. We still have an election coming up on November 3rd. Early voting is underway in several states, and we have a lot to unpack uh, in this season before the the November 3rd election, uh, both from the perspective of the schedule that we're going to see with the Senate uh, and the how it affects the different races out there in the country. Joining me today on Political Theater are two of my favorite colleagues uh, and senior writers, Niels Lesniewski and Bridget Bowman. Niels and Bridget, welcome and thank you for for agreeing to come on and be, you know, just questioned on things that we think we know. Thanks, Jason.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Jason. I mean, it was pretty relaxed and quiet news day, so it's happy to chat <laughs> right. about
0: <laughs> Right.
1: <laughs> Not too much going on.
0: Right, said, said nobody ever in 2020. <laughs> right. Um, Niels, let's let's start with you just about some of the timing issues uh you know, we're right in the middle uh, of the some of the memorial observances for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's lying in repose in the Supreme Court uh, and she'll move over to the Capitol later on this week. but uh you know things are going to pick up uh, the pace pretty quickly. The president has said he will uh, announce his, his nominee over the weekend, uh, but let's talk about the timing on that, and then also what we can expect from the Senate in the uh, in the in the coming week or so, because we also have uh, we're on sort of a holiday schedule with the Jewish High Holy Days.
2: That's right. So what we are trying to figure out is whether or not there's going to be an agreement uh, to move the uh, continuing resolution to fund the government through the. Senate before the end of the week. In which case, if if they manage to pull that off, our colleagues who are in the Capitol uh, today are hearing that uh, from from John Thune, the majority uh, whip in the Senate, that the Senate may just basically depart for the election, other than coming back for either some sort of COVID relief package, which seems unlikely, or for the Supreme Court nomination fight, which right now I would say is more likely than not that that's what they would come back for. Uh, We are hearing that the timing is such, it'll probably take a couple of weeks, process the paperwork uh, for whomever uh, President Trump decides to nominate uh, and announce formally on Saturday. Uh, So what I would anticipate, and is, is sort of what the reporting is leaning towards today, is that Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, uh, would like to have those hearings probably uh, around October twelfth or thirteenth. Uh, that week would give enough time, barely, but would give enough time uh, to Mitch McConnell if he wanted to call the vote uh, before the election. I uh, have been, I have been saying that the uh, the strange but not outlandish scenario could have the uh, confirmation vote for the Supreme Court justice. Uh, coming on Halloween.
0: It is now a cliche that we've even used in this podcast about 2020, uh, that just when you think you've got it kind of figured out or adjusted to a new reality, you get a new one. Um, So, I mean, some of the things that are interesting about this timing, though, is that, um, you know, we rarely see a lot of congressional activity in the month before uh, an election, particularly a general election, a presidential election. So October is kind of a, you know, quiet time. Uh, based on what we've seen in previous confirmation uh, debates over the last couple of years, with particularly with the last one, Brett Kavanaugh in 2018, I think we can expect that it would be uh, a lot of activity. And at the center of that, as you mentioned, Niels, uh, is Lindsey Graham, who's the Judiciary Committee chairman. Uh, he would be presiding over those hearings. He was very... Uh, I, I, you know, to hear him say it, he was just just scarred by the the Kavanaugh uh, hearings, which is why he's uh, you know proceeding the way he is and uh, and kind of you know pu- you know pushing this in the in the Democrats' face. But he's also Bridget. You follow a lot of our uh, these Senate races. He's up for reelection himself, and what was not expected to be a competitive race in South Carolina for his reelection. All, you know, It it has been getting competitive, and now this has the potential to really change things. Let's talk about his race and his opponent.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think in talking to various campaign strategists since Justice Ginsburg passed away, uh, he, his race is definitely one that comes up a lot in terms of where the Supreme Court fight could really make an impact. Uh, He's running against Democrat Jamie Harrison, and Harrison has just proven to be a blockbuster fundraiser. He's raised almost $30 million, which is the same as Graham. Uh, So I'm really interested to see how much money he's going to report at the end of this quarter, which ends next week. Um, just, just when he thought he couldn't raise any more money, I'm guessing he's probably pulling in some big numbers over the last few days. We've, we've seen record amounts of money flowing through Act Blue, which is the democratic fundraising platform. A
0: hundred million dollars over the weekend or something ridic- ridiculous almost, you know.
1: That's right, yeah, as of Sunday morning, Act Blue said over a hundred million dollars and, and Justice Ginsburg passed away Friday night. So Democrats were quick to mobilize and that number has only increased. Um, I was actually talking to Shaniqua McClendon who's the political director of Cricket Media. Um, they have a get Mitch or die trying fund and it splits donations between 14 Senate candidates. And she said, describing watching Friday night, the numbers, she said, just kept going up. And she couldn't put into words like what it was like watching their act blue page tick up. I couldn't put it into words. The numbers just would not stop moving. And every time someone with a lot of followers tweeted out to get Mitch Link, you could see it start moving faster and faster. And, you know, I must say it was it was the only thing that made me feel good that night. Uh, they had 185,000 donors who donated th- to the first time through that fund, which is notable because we thought already Democrats were really fired up. And this is just kind of bringing it up a notch.
0: And and Niels, uh, I'm, we'll get back to Bridget in a second about some of the other folks uh, who are feeling a little bit of heat because of the election campaign season in general but now especially uh like Susan Collins in Maine but before before we get into delving some of that I wanted to ask you um that I mean you're our uh, our chief correspondent uh you split uh, your time between the White House and and covering the Capitol uh and dabble in politics and uh, of course and uh you know Senator Kamala Harris uh, from California the vice presidential nominee on Joe uh, with for uh, uh the democratic ticket with Joe Biden uh she really uh was sort of a breakout star for the democrats during the Kavanaugh hearing you know she really put his feet to the fire uh came across as a kind of a no bs prosecutor in her questioning uh what are what are you hearing about like whether i mean like we heard a little bit about like oh democrats might just boycott this uh this hearing process and and declare it you know um illegitimate but would I mean, is there talk of Harris sort of like sharpening, you know, her, uh, you know, sort of questioning skills in anticipation of, you know, basically having the spotlight on her during these Judiciary Committee hearings?
2: Well, Jason, the timing is going to be fascinating because, in theory, these hearings will probably come the week after the vice presidential debate. And so, as a political calculation, there's a couple things going on. One is, do Democrats participate at all? Or do they sort of call this all a sham and basically return the favor of the Republicans who wouldn't even meet with our old friend Merrick Garland when he was uh, President Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court seat that was vacated uh, by Scalia's death? Uh, that would be one question. And But if if there are hearings, I don't think there's any doubt that, uh, that uh, Senator Harris would participate in her role as a senator. Uh, but what gets kind of amusing about this is it is the Senate. And so uh, one thing that is going to be kind of odd, I am sure, for people who only watch the Senate hearings once every four years or when there's a confirmation battle for the Supreme Court or whatever, is she's sitting all the way at the end of the table you know, or the virtual table if we end up doing this over uh, WebEx. Being one of the more junior members, right? She's a junior member. And so you're going to have to go through the questioning of all these other people who have been around the Senate a lot longer uh, before you ever get to Senator Harris's questioning. Uh, And so that's always kind of one of the amusing parts of this is is that the, the breakout star, if they will be, of the party Maybe actually after most people have already turned away from the hearing or moved on to something else, and and then we're all watching the clips back afterwards.
0: And Bridget, let's uh let's talk about Maine a little bit. Um I mean, Senator Susan Collins is up for re-election. This may be one of her uh toughest races that she's uh, ever run. Uh she's the polling shows a very close race. Uh and the the previous, you know, Kavanaugh confirmation in 2018, um, because she was one, regarded as a swing vote when she dec- said that she was going to vote for Kavanaugh, uh you know, Democrats and their allies set up this um, this sort of like bounty prize that they were raising money for whomever would be her opponent, uh, based on that vote. And now she finds herself, even though she's not on the judiciary committee, at you know, it's still in in kind of the um, the hot seat uh, because even though she said I don't think we should vote on anybody until after the election, uh, and that she wouldn't vote for somebody until after the election, this is an issue in her race, and and she and it was tight before it was it came up, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. She's in a really tough position because she needs the president's voters, kind of the base Republicans, she needs all of them to support her, but she also needs to win over independents and more moderate voters. And so that could maybe explain why she came out and said, I don't think the Senate should move on this. But you're right, this was an issue that was already animating her race, and it just maybe kicks it up another notch. Again, it'll be interesting to see what her opponent, uh, Main House Speaker Sarah Gideon, what kind of fundraising she posts after this Um, But Republicans are also kind of admitting that this Supreme Court fight because it's expected to even further polarize people That this could be a problem for folks like Collins and Senator Cory Gardner in Colorado as well They're both Republicans who are running in states that Trump lost in 2016 But I think it's also gonna be interesting to see so there are actually three other members of the Judiciary Committee who are in competitive races That's Joni Ernst of Iowa Tom Tillis of North Carolina, and John Cornyn of Texas. So to see if those folks are stuck in Washington at hearings, it's going to be interesting to see how their races play out. I think those races, again, were already looking competitive. um, So we'll see kind of what what happens next with them. But they're going to be in the spotlight as well.
0: And what's also interesting about their races is that, um, I mean, much like the dynamic with Susan Collins, they need the president's voters and base to turn out for them. Uh, they also need, um, it, to to certain degrees. Certainly, with Tom Tillis uh, uh, in in North Carolina, in you know this sort of perpetual swing state, um, they but they also need some crossover. I mean, they need they need people who are independents, and they need people who are per, uh, potentially, you know, a little bit more liberal or moderate on social issues like abortion to vote for them. And this is uh, a tight walk, a real tightrope for a lot of them, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. And I was actually talking to one Democratic strategist who suggested this might be trickier even for Cornyn, uh, just because that race has been a little more under the radar. Uh, Iowa and North Carolina have been consistently very close for quite a while, Democratic challengers there, consistently raising a good amount of money. Um, But in the Texas race, the presidential numbers have been fairly close. Trump up one or two points, kind of going back and forth between him, him and Biden. But Cornyn has had more of a consistent lead. So the question is, like, does this help Cornyn's opponent, MJ Hagar, kind of catch up to where Biden is in the polling. But the problem with Texas is it's huge and it's so expensive. There are 20 media markets. So if this does help Hagar fundraise, uh, that could be a good thing for her. Her campaign told me they had 200,000 online donations over the weekend. So they're not saying how much that amounted to, but that could still be a good good amount of money, but it might not go as far in Texas just because it's so expensive.
0: And this seems to be the story of the campaign season, right, Bridget, that the, um, I mean, th- th- this is very much a toss up. I mean, the, the, the Republicans have 53 seats. Uh, so they, you know, the Democrats would need to flip, uh, have a net gain of three seats if they win the presidency or four uh, if, if Trump wins reelection. But all of the headwinds seem to be like with with uh Republicans with the exception of Doug Jones the Democrat mm-hmm. who's in um, Alabama who faces a tough race but I mean like they they're fighting they're on defense in states that they don't they don't usually you know have to fight too hard for uh and that just keeps coming up and I You know, this has the potential to animate some of the base for them, but it's also just one more thing, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's one more thing they're going to have to answer questions about or be in DC, like I mentioned, if they're on the committee. Uh, So, yeah, it's just like you said, one more thing, but it's unclear. I mean, most campaign folks we've been talking to don't expect this to be like a fundamental shift in these Senate races just because they have consistently been so close and people have already been so polarized. And there's a question for these independent voters how much the Supreme Court really matters to them. Like it really matters to the hardcore Democrats, hardcore Republicans. But folks in the middle, Democrats are saying they're still really concerned about healthcare and they're still re- really concerned about the pandemic. So that's what we're going to keep talking about. Um, so, yeah, I think it. it the impact is kind of unclear, except for at least what we do know is it is impacting fundraising for a lot of these campaigns.
2: Well, and, and if I if I can jump in and say there's the other the other piece of the Supreme Court discussion here and the one that I'm already getting the sense that Republicans are trying to seize on is the calls from progressives to mm-hmm. increase the number of seats on the Supreme Court, the so-called court packing. Uh, If McConnell and the Republicans go ahead with this, that may be something that does not have support in some of these more red, purple sort of states that may elect Democratic senators. You know, you're already seeing a situation, I believe it's in Alaska, where the independent candidate who, uh, Dr. Gross, who's the independent candidate who is functionally the Democratic nominee up there is expressing some skepticism about the idea of expanding the Supreme Court. Uh, I suspect there'll be others of that. And so if it becomes more of a uh, discussion about the institution of the Supreme Court versus about whether or not the uh, Trump nominee would overturn Roe v. Wade or upend the Affordable Care Act, uh, that may be a different calculus in terms of who it benefits or hurts politically.
0: Yeah. And I, I got to say that the, you know, the, when we'll, we'll talk a little bit about procedure in a second, about like the, you know, the the sort of weapons that Democrats could deploy in this fight. Uh, but it is, I mean, I, I think that it's worth noting that you can expand the size of courts, whether it's the district court level, adding uh, a district, you know, like uh, in in a state, if it, once its uh, population expands or increasing the number of seats on a circuit court of appeals, as we've seen uh, repeatedly throughout history on, and the size of the Supreme Court, this is all, none of this is in the constitution. Uh, the, the size of these courts, the number of justices or the number of, of judges at, at the circuit court level or the district court level. So, I mean, Congress could pass this uh, through just legislation. And, um, you know, so it is an easier task. And also the, the size of the Supreme Court has not been static. We have gone, you know, higher than this. We've had 10 justices. We've gone down, I think, to five at one point. So, I mean, it, it's really, it's a very fluid and it's a very doable situation.
1: Yeah. And to Niels's point, I mean, I don't know if there'd be folks in campaigns who would say like voters really care about vote court packing, but it is part of what Niels is saying, the broader argument Republicans are making against Democrats, that if Democrats become in charge, they'd unleash this extreme agenda. And another interesting point when we're thinking about the political impact of this is that in 2016, when another Supreme Court seat was on the line, which is kind of crazy, this is the third consecutive cycle where we've been talking about the Supreme Court. Uh, But in 2016, we saw Republicans who weren't big fans of President Trump kind of hold their nose and vote for him because of this very issue, because of the courts. Uh, But it's not clear. I've been asking folks, like, will that happen again? Um, But some, some folks I've been talking to have said, like, those voters who were skeptical in 2016 are now either already on one side or the other. They're either voting for him again or they're not. Like they're not as as kind of swingy as, as they might have been four years ago.
0: And Neils, so we'll find out who the nominee is uh, for sure on Saturday. Uh, usually, something you know gets out a little bit before that. Uh, the two, there's two uh, uh, you know the the front runners for it. Uh, Trump says he has a list of up to five people, but the the sort of agreed upon front runners are uh, two circuit court judges, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and and Barbara Lagoa, and so once we get the nominee, once like let's say you know they they do get it onto the floor Democrats don't have the kind of procedural options to delay this anymore because uh, in in 2017, Mitch McConnell um, lowered the threshold for the filibuster to uh, Supreme Court nominees to just a simple majority. It used to be three-fifths. Harry Reid had done that with uh, previous like executive and, and judicial nominations in, in previous years. But there is effectively no filibuster of, of any relevance You know when it's just a, simply a, a, a simple majority any longer. What else can they do, though, to delay things? Because we've seen a little hint of what might be to come uh, just this week.
2: Yeah, I, I, the the options are limited. We we did see uh, Senator Schumer object to holding a routine uh, committee meeting uh, at the Intelligence Committee and some others this week uh, in the afternoon. This,
0: this is the. This is the two-hour rule, where you, in order to meet past the two hours in the morning or past, you know, past two p.m., you have to get unanimous consent. You have to have some sort of agreement, and any one senator, like you said, the minority leader Chuck Schumer, he can just say, "Nope, I object," and it just it tends to just tick people off more than like really grind the gears. But it is, we're I think I was acceptable we'll see a little bit more of it though,
2: right? Right, and and the one thing that I will be looking at to give sort of a prelude of what I'll be. Um, paying attention to uh, Thursday afternoon, most likely, or whenever the uh, whenever the continuing resolution gets done, is whether or not there is an agreement to hold pro forma sessions. Uh, because if if in fact uh, the Senate intends to leave after continu- doing the continuing resolution until uh, Lindsey Graham is ready with the Supreme Court nomination for the floor. That theoretically requires an agreement that the Senate can meet once every three days and, and just gavel in and out uh, with one senator present and not really do anything. Uh, setting the schedule of pro is on the list of things that requires unanimous consent. Otherwise, you functionally would be in a situation where either the Senate has to come in for real or they would probably have to come in at least every weekday at noon, declare there to be no quorum and leave. Um, but so there are sort of little antiky sort of things that, there were some antics that could be deployed, but none of them really uh, have any functional effect other than, frankly, really annoying the floor staff because the parliamentarian has to show up every day uh, that the Senate comes in, even if there's nothing going on. and And if they have to, go through the motions of meeting every day, that might be the kind of thing that, I don't know if it's useful for Democrats to do it or not, but that might be the kind of thing we look for.
0: And also just uh, from a logistics standpoint, if, if senators do go home uh, and then have to come back in order to do something like this, they have a even if it's just like one or two of them. There's a limited number of them that can uh, or that can get here very easily because, for the most part, in the mid-Atlantic and on the East Coast and the Eastern Seaboard, uh, there aren't a lot of Republicans. <laughs> uh, that you know, the,
2: like in Virginia, Maryland. <laughs> what, what we will most likely see if this were to happen, um, you will see which senators really live in their home states versus which senators, <laughs> you know may live closer to the Capitol building than they let on or or spend more of their time here. I know that, like, usually when they have pro farmers around Christmas, Pat Roberts, the chairman of the Agriculture Committee, has been a regular feature uh, in the Capitol, gaggling with reporters on, like, December 27th, so... Nowhere near Kansas. No, and that was a whole (laughs) that came up when he last ran for re-election, and nobody really cared. So uh, I suppose if you're a senator like that, that's fine. But but that is kind of what happens: is you end up with a lot more people who spend more time in Washington, who spend more time at the Capitol.
0: Bridget, uh, like I'll kind of give you the last like sort of word about like what are you going to be looking for. Uh, in in some of these center races, as as we get a little bit of distance from the the death of of uh, Justice Ginsburg and a nominee, and and what you know, basically what you would be looking at uh, in, in what we hope is the home stretch. Now, I think I can say that. Um, I don't
1: think twenty twenty yeah, will ever end. No, it's just gonna.
0: <laughs> but so, what what are you going to be looking for uh, in, in the coming weeks with your reporting?
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be a little tough to discern how much any like fund tightening and polling or anything we're seeing is actually an impact, like a result of the Supreme Court fight, just because there is so much <laughs> else going on. Uh, but I think certainly fundraising is going to be a big a big thing to watch like I said the next quarter is ending next week and reports are due mid-october so we'll be able to see going into the home stretch who has the most money to get their message out to voters who like you said earlier are already voting um and this is especially important this cycle with people knocking on doors less and having to make phone calls and texting then that costs more money than canvassing so that'll definitely be a key a key thing to watch and I think I am interested in how these folks on the Judiciary Committee, especially Senator Graham, navigate this. And, and you know, does this issue come up in advertising or are other issues still going to be dominating paid messaging? Uh, that will just be something we'll have to wait and see.
0: Well, Bridget, Niels, thank you so much for uh, talking about this. There is uh, a lot, you know, that, that has happened in the last few days. There will continue to be a lot that happens. Uh, but I think this is a good uh, sort of table setter for what we can expect in the next couple of weeks and, and also just what we're going to be looking for. I really appreciate uh, you uh, you both uh, helping, helping guide
2: us through it. Thank you.
1: Sure. Thanks for having us.